0: Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Hello. Simon. It's Skylar. Hey, doing? Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of thoughts and folk and fairy tales, wisdom from our elders. And I am your host, Simon Brooks. A meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, tell folk and fairy tales, myths and legends. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom, and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad that you're here. Aldrina Domar is an elder from the Pueblo people of the Hopi, Tiwa and Laguna, Today, living in Texas, she also spends a lot of time between New Mexico and Arizona. Her close upbringing with her family and the folks around her gives her a deep insight into how story goes so deeply within the Pueblo people, in a way I had not realised before. It helped me understand why some first American people do not like their stories being told by folks who are not part of their immediate world and community. This is not just about how deep story is in Aldrina's blood. It's the history of the Pueblo people. We also talk about how Aldrina moved to incorporate this to bring stories of her heritage to others. Aldrina Doma, thank you so much indeed for joining me on this uh, Conversations with Storytellers. I'm very excited to talk to you.
1: Thank you. I am too. I'm I'm anxious to get to know a little bit more about you.
0: Sorry. Oh, this is about you, not me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I probably will learn something along the way about you.
0: Probably, probably. So you you are Native American, first American. Um, which title do you prefer, just out of curiosity?
1: Actually I come from the Pueblos of the Laguna, the Tewa and the Hopi.
0: Okay. All right. So that and and that is New Mexico and Arizona, am I right? Correct. All right. But you currently reside in Texas, am I right?
1: Yes, in the panhandle of Texas, right um, a little bit south of uh, Uh I-40, in between Amarillo and Canyon, Texas.
0: My wife and I drove over that that highway, (laughs) and I remember looking out of one side of the window and saw this fence coming up towards us. And I looked out the other window on the other side of the car, and it looked like the fence had just gone all the way around the world and come back again. It was so (laughs) flat. I I don't think I've ever been anywhere as flat as that panhandle in Texas.
1: Yes. And, uh, you know, it's I that's how I know that people are just traveling through when I meet them and they'll say, oh, you live in Amarillo. We passed through there. It was so flat. (laughs) And I said, "Okay, so you didn't that means that you didn't stay for very long. And they said, no, we just passed through it. I said, well, usually when you pass through it, You just see nothing but flat because when I first lived, came to live here, I thought Mm -hmm. the same thing. And then when I was teaching, I happened to be teaching at a school that was the furthest up north in the Amarillo School District. And I went on um, just on my own. We weren't required to do it, but I I just did it on my own. I went to go visit the families of the kids that I was going to be teaching. Mm -hmm. And when I went to this one area, um, I happened to just look back. And I thought, "Oh my goodness, I'm on a hill, and I'm looking down. How does that happen? Because visually, you don't even see that. It's just the strangest thing. And then, of course, we have the second largest canyon just to the south of Amarillo, called Paladuro Canyon, and and that is a good oh. place too.
0: Oh, I bet I've. Um, so my wife, she lived in Albuquerque for a while. And one of the things that we did when we drove across, because we were moving to Portland, Oregon, when we drove across country, we, we, you know, we were heading into New Mexico to hang out with some of her friends that she had made when she lived there.
1: Yes. And
0: it was interesting because when you, when you got further east, you started to see like little bumps and hills and then the mesas start to appear and, and Mm -hmm. it, it does become absolutely gorgeous. And the canyons of, of the, of that part of, America are just amazing absolutely yes. amazing so where, where did you grow up exactly where, where was your where was the beginning of your life
1: um I grew up I was actually born in Winslow Arizona mm-hmm. and um my mom and my dad uh that's where that's where they were living and um it it kind of all began with them because my mother's people came from uh New Mexico and his his uh family came from Arizona and so um when i was growing up you know you, ne- you never think to ask questions you never think to ask how did this all happen and right. then once you get older you start to figure out pieces around you and um and it's all very historical actually how their whole life um evolved around history because um There was, I don't know what year it was, but um, the Grand Canyon started to hire uh, young Native people in the area. And so Mm -hmm. they hired them to come and work at the Grand Canyon uh, in all different areas. And so my father went to the Grand Canyon with several of his friends to just go find a job because they heard about it. And so he was doing odd jobs. He was um, kind of working in, um, I think, a little shop, and they might have, you know, he might have been doing uh, mechanical stuff. Um, I mean, he did a lot of odd jobs. And and if I have a chance, I'll tell a little bit of a story about um, a tourist that came and um, just just started up conversation with him and then he ended up wanting my father to be his tour guide and that was (laughs) that was not my father's position so anyway i don't know who this man was but somehow he talked to my father's supervisor and for that one day maybe more but dad was just talking about that one day um he was his tour guide and i thought wow and and you know you hear those stories you don't know what kind of questions to ask but hindsight looking back that is one of the things that i wished i would have asked more questions on is dad who was this man to where he he went to your supervisor and you know got your supervisor to allow you to be a tour guide when that wasn't your position i mean and he must have been a good Either he, he, he paid something or yeah right. I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) Yes. But anyway, um, so that's the story that my dad, and then it goes, it goes on. There's some more to that story, but, um, then my mother was in high school at Winslow and, and this all took place during the summer months. And so, um, her sister had contacted her, came home and said to her, you know, Why don't you come back with me to the Grand Canyon because they need they need workers there. And um, I think you could get on as a worker. So she said, well, I I don't know if mom and dad would let me go because I think that was her junior year. And her sister, her sister said, well, you know, and and, you know, she talked some more about her. and, And I think she convinced my mom that. Um, that it was a, a good thing to do. And so she said, well, you might have to go ahead and ask mom and dad for me because I don't think they'll let me go if I ask. So uh, my aunt asked permission and they said, okay, as long as you're going to be there, you take care of her, you watch her and everything like that. And, and she can go. So my mom started work at the Grand Canyon. And I was just at that time when I found out, I said, oh, mom, I said, so what did you do? And she said, well, I first worked at the Bright Angel Lodge. And um, what we did is we cleaned rooms and everything. And and then the next year, the next summer, I went back, they put me in the laundry room. And then, you know, we just washed all of the linens for the the rooms and hotels and everything like that. And I told, I asked her, I said, so what was your favorite job? And she said, I would have to say the bright angel lodge. And I asked, you know, why she said, because at the bright angel lodge, whenever we got to take breaks or have lunch, they had an area there in the restaurant that all of us kids could sit at. And so no matter where we were working at the bright angel lodge, we came together. And that's how we got to know one another and what tribe, um, Everyone was from, and how did they get there, and who who are they? And so it was. A, I guess she liked that personable uh, part of it. And she yeah. said, When I worked at the uh, laundromat, she said we didn't have anything like that. We just kind of were all kind of um, on our own. They didn't have an an area where we could all gather together. And so she said I I would have to say the Bright Angel Lodge. I and she said and I liked making beds, and I liked cleaning. I like cleaning rooms, as she said, and I thought to myself, yes, I can vouch for that because when I was (laughs) growing up, I mean, she she had me making those beds to where those sheets were tight and, you know, before fitted sheets and all of that came and um, she didn't have a laundry room. So when I was growing up, um, we had to boil our water and we had the galvanized tubs. Um, that she had a little room off to the side from the kitchen, and those uh, those tubs would be in there. And then we had the washboards that um, we had to wash the clothes by hand. Wow. Uh, and then uh, the two of us would she would say, Drina, hold on to this, um, hold on to this side of the clothes," and she would twist it and twist it so we could wring out as much water. And Amen. then we would take them outside. She put them in a basket we'd go outside together and we'd hang clothes together on the clothesline. And so that was something that we did. And of course, once we were done washing, we had to empty out the water and take it. And it, it was a lot of work and it took all day. Uh, and then of course, once the clothes dried, you bring them in. And mom liked, um, to iron her linens. So uh, Mm -hmm. early on, I was like, she would put them on in the basket and right before we would iron, um, she would sprinkle it with water and i think it had a little bit of starch in it or something and yeah. when, um she was teaching me how to iron certain things you know <laughs> what it's the funniest thing because now when i iron mm-hmm. it's almost meditative to me yeah. i don't iron like um i don't you know unless i really have to but if i'm just ironing i just really enjoy the detailed part of it getting those little things ironed and maybe, you know, in a strange way, it takes me back to that simple time in in my life
0: when bet, yeah. um,
1: it wasn't so busy. Um, and because when I was younger, um, that whole era of my time, because uh, was really, um, when I think back on it, and I've thought back on it a lot lately, but... I just remember the quietness of life. Um, I'm sure the rest of the world was not as quiet, but in my world, it was very simple. When I was younger, I uh, grew up in, born in Winslow. Right. And then um, my dad, after he uh, left the Grand Canyon, um, he went ahead and got a job with the Santa Fe Railroad. And the same okay. aunt that got my mom the job in uh, Grand Canyon, she met a Hopi man from a different village than my mom. Uh, Mm -hmm. My dad was Tewa and Hopi. And my uncle was Hopi. And so he got a job with the Santa Fe Railroad. So um, my aunt and him got married. So that when my mom and my dad got married, um, he said, you know, why don't you come and work for the Santa Fe Railroad? They're looking for workers. So he got my dad a job working with the Santa Fe Railroad. Now, were
0: these these freight trains?
1: Um, Yes.
0: Uh, Okay.
1: Yeah, uh, they they, they all had different jobs. Some of them worked on, like, the crew that that laid the tracks or took care of them. Oh, okay. And some of them um, were, uh, they would be the painters. They would paint the bridges or, you know, anything that needed to be painted, signs, whatever. And the main hub was based out of Winslow, Arizona. And so right next to the train track was where they, the Santa Fe Railroad, well, I I say Santa Fe, it may have been built when they were um, at, at, I can never say that word, Atkinson's uh, Railroad, Atchison's Railroad, and Santa Fe. But they built a community there for the Laguna workers Laguna being in New Mexico, Winslow being in Arizona, um, when the railroad was coming through the southwest, right. they had to get permission from the tribes in New Mexico to come through their land because they were using not only their land, but they were also going to be tapping into the water source for. Whatever right. So they had to have permission. They did not know that. Until the government there in New Mexico told them, well, you can't just, you know, come right through. You're going to have to, the area that you're planning to go through is through um, tribal lands. Uh, And so you're going to have to go to their government and ask permission for them, for you to go through. Wow.
0: I didn't think the American government did such things. (laughs) Sorry, I'm very jaded about about that one. Maybe
1: not. I don't know, maybe not the U.S., but the state of New Mexico, you know, they basically said, you know, yeah, you you can come through here, but the, uh, you know, on your your information there, you're going through some tribal lands, you're going to have to go there. So they did, they went there and um, they went through the, um, what back then they called it the San Domingo uh, tribal lands. But today, a lot of the Pueblo tribes are going back to their original names because the Spaniards changed their names when they came into...
0: Right, yes. And so
1: today, when you go back um, among the Southwest Indians in particular, and I think others are doing it too, um, they are, you'll go back and you, you will see their name changing on signs and stuff. So today uh, you might see the sign Kiwa because that's the, the name of the, the San Domingo Pueblo people. Uh, their oh. original name is Kiwa. And then Laguna, um, it, their original name is Goaik. So that is their name. Laguna was just given to us by the Spaniards. So okay. that was the name that they placed on the people. And since it was documented, then from that point on, everybody referred the pe- the the Goaik people as Lagunas. And so that's how we got those names, and then if you look throughout New Mexico, a lot of the tribes there um, they have Spanish names, uh, and that was that was from the time that the Spaniards came to the land, and um, kind of just. I didn't know them. that. Yeah, because oh. I think um, well, I, I think with lagunas because there was water around the area, and, mm-hmm. and that is what Laguna referred to. That's right. kind of how they came up the, with the name for the people there. Um, and then the others, um, when they started to build their missions on the tribal lands, um, whatever mission or saint, whatever you know, that that might have something to do with right, what they named them, what they named them. so
0: it's it's amazing like how colonialism reaches so deeply into the cultures that were already existing, mm-hmm. and I think. We all realize that, and w- when I say we, I mean you know the Western Europeans um, yes. you know being english uh, you know I've read a lot of my history and, and we we weren't we weren't very good mentors for the rest of the world that's for sure in, well, in, in, in a lot the, of what we did
1: yeah, you know the thing about it is that when you look back um and and I think uh myself as a as a native woman as a pueblo woman um Mm -hmm. i grew up with um just the way the world was at the time my family grew up like that too but yet we had they had a close connection to our culture and our traditions and that was one of the things that happened when they started to build the community for the santa fe workers in winslow is they realized early on that in order to keep the workers doing a good job and not getting homesick, they had to build a community that brought their families to them. And
0: So, so it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily forward thinking or um, it, it wasn't for altruistic <laughs> reasons. It was more for 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 keeping people there for profit and loss reasons by the sound of it
1: yeah and the, because there were there were traditions that were taking place throughout the year at the in the motherland basically back at right. traditional homelands and so it it didn't make sense to them to miss out on these these uh ceremonies that were so much a part of their lives right. and, uh, so anyway <laughs> what happened was santa fe Um, with all of the workers from Laguna, they, wherever they were, um, working at like, say for instance, they're in, in Albuquerque, in Gallup, in Winslow. And then there were two others in, um, in California and they all had these little communities and they called them the Laguna colony is what they called it. And so our people were the first ones, probably <laughs> some of the first ones, if not the first ones that were actually living in, um, uh, the, uh, the railroad cars, you know, now they're selling them for people to build houses. Oh, little, right. little tiny <laughs> yeah, houses. yeah. Yeah. Well, back then that, that was their house. Those were their houses. They went ahead and got these empty cars and placed them in rows. And then the people, they made houses out of them. And so, um, oh, wow. Yeah. And then they connected them, um, you know, with, with, uh, you know, construction in between. So they were like in rows families lived in rows. So like, for instance, my grandmother and them, um, you know, they, that was my grandfather was working there. So my grandma and, um, the children went to go live there. And that was kind of where my mom was raised up. And all that time, I thought my mom was raised up back at Laguna. And then when she got older, she went to Winslow. But then okay. when I started to hear her stories, uh, she was talking about going to school there in elementary and then junior high and graduate or going to Winslow High School. So she lived there longer than I thought she did. Um, and- hey, uh- all of that culture was brought with them. So throughout- That's so the, neat. Yeah, so throughout the, they even elected their own officials. So like uh, back at the the original homeland of Laguna, you have your, um, your governor, your lieutenant governor, your war chiefs, and then every village has their own officers. And so they have village meetings um, now today, I don't know about back then, but today they have like a village meeting where their officers and the people come together for a meeting at their village once a week. And then the officers of every village, they come together with, uh, all, all the other officers, um, right. throughout the week. And so there is discussion on, you know, what's going on here and there, what needs to get voted on. This is what the people are saying. Um, This is what we uh, this is what we're going to vote for. This is not what we're going to vote for. You know, so there's that discussion that happens uh, constantly throughout the week. And then when the meetings, the village meetings take place, then the officers take the information back to the people of the villages and tell them what was discussed. And then they can they can discuss it among themselves because at Laguna, we have six villages. Mm-hmm. and they're all different you know even though um we're all lagunas uh depending on where their village is located uh determines a lot of decisions that, that are going to be different than the other uh villages so so there's this, a lot
0: of is this it, based on topography and and resources and that kind of stuff uh
1: yes that too yes and then um this kind of like um you know the beliefs of the villages themselves like there's one village there's one village that does not allow women to come to their meetings but there are other villages that do allow the women to come to their meetings so they can they can determine that on their own because they're their own tribal entity of their village and so they're given um they they continue to have the ability to make decisions for their own people of their own village, even though even though they live in a bigger bigger space, so yeah, yeah. so um, you know that that is a rare thing because a lot of the other pueblos in New Mexico, they don't they might not have um they might not have all of the same thing that Laguna has. They they might not have all those villages, so there's not a lot of decisions that have to take place. I mean. Well, gotcha. there's, still, there's still a lot of decisions that have to be take place, but it do, it might not take that long, I guess. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there are less people. Well, there are less units mm-hmm. to to talk yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
1: so what happened then when all of these colonies were along the railroad with the Laguna people? Uh-huh. They they were like a uh, extended village. Uh, so not only Laguna had the six villages that they had back home in New Mexico but now they have these satellite villages that have their own officers um, that are staying in communication with the main village. And, you know, think about it, because they didn't have um, access to cell phones, and even the phone at the time cost.
0: That's yeah. what I was going to say. Did they have phones back then? I mean, my, yeah. you know, my wife comes from a um, you know, fairly rural part of uh, New York State, Um, and one of, one of her family members was the first one to have the phone put in nobody else on that street had a telephone, you know, which to kids these days must be like, what,
1: how can that be?
0: (laughs) And that's a wired telephone. There's no like snapchatting on those things.
1: (laughs) Yes. 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 Well, and, and it was the same, you know, that only a few people had phones. And so if you need, you needed to make a phone call, sometimes they would say, well, you can use it, but you need, I need to charge you because it's going to cost me money for you to call. So a lot of times, you know, I remembered um, when we moved back to Laguna. um, So uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me just take you through my journey then. So from (laughs) Winslow, Uh my parents got divorced and my dad went to go back and live on the, um the Hopi lands at first Mesa is where he came from, from a village called Palaka. And so um, he is Tewa and Hopi. So he went back to go live and he lived with his mother. And then my mother uh, stayed at Winslow for a while and um, she met another person and that uh, she and the, she and her next husband, Ended up going back to New Mexico, taking us kids with them, and so that's kind of how we left Arizona and went back to New Mexico. And then there was uh, several years where um, I stayed with my dad and my grandmother, and my brothers stayed back at Laguna. And then there was a time when all of us—my uh, four of—well, uh, actually, um, my two brothers and myself. There was a time where we all lived at Palaca together and then um, and then they went back to Laguna. So there was this in and out, in and out of uh, between uh, New Mexico and Arizona in my life. And then when I became a junior, um, uh, I'm sorry, junior high student, seventh grade, one of my brothers um, kind of he he kind of made a decision for for me or I wouldn't say he made a decision, he brought up something to my dad and he asked my dad if I could come back to Laguna and live with them. And he said, because even though, you know, you and mom are not together, um, I I want my sister to be with us so that we won't keep being separated from each other. And he asked my dad's permission if I could do that. And I felt really bad because now I'm in the middle and I love my brothers. Um, I don't know Laguna that much, but I love my brothers. And um, I'm with my, my dad and my saya. Saya means grandmother in the Tewa language. So I'm living with my saya and my dad. They don't have a lot. But one of the things that I think back on is why did I enjoy being there so much when they had so little? And I think it was because what what they had was the most precious, and that was time. They had time for me. I was the only person, the only young person living with them, so they gave me everything that of who they were. They gave me their stories. They gave me their songs. Um, I I was able to witness two great artists that I didn't even think about because it was just so much a part of my world. But my grandmother came from a, um, a wonderful pottery family that is renowned throughout the world, and I didn't even know that. You know, her mother <laughs> is known. Her mother was known as the the one that helped to revive the hopi pottery into what it is today and her name was really yes her name was and so that was her mother and she would tell me things about what they would do and places they would go and you know how her mother um traveled and people came after her and how they would go to the grand canyon and the the hopi house that's at the grand canyon was where they would live when my great grandmother was asked to go there to make pottery at the Grand Canyon. They lived up in the Hopi house. And um, so she would talk about that, but she didn't tell me how old she was. And she was just a little girl when that happened. And so one day I happened to take my children to the Grand Canyon. We went into the gift shop and I told them, I said, you see this house on top of the gift shop? They call it the Hopi house. That's where my Saya and her mother and then they lived up there and they made pottery of course it was closed off to tourists because you know it's it's so much it's old and stuff now so um so i could only point to it and say that's where my my grandmother and them uh, lived when they came to work here at the grand canyon and then we went into the gift shop and i just happened to be twirling around um the postcard rack and they had some big pictures eight by ten and there's a picture of my great grandmother and her family <laughs> sitting out in front of the Hopi house. And I'm and I'm. I told I said kids, I said look, this is your this is your great 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 grandmother and my and your great grandmother, and um, and so I said this is uh well actually yeah it might be more greats than that. And so I went ahead and bought them, and and then later on i found those same pictures in books that i had come across and so you know i i still have them to this very day but right, you I have one
0: of those that, books on your website right
1: yeah well uh, you know it's just one of these things that you come across and and all of a sudden all those stories that you had heard about you know they they come to life and then you realize that this is the place where my parents met huh. that's the place that's the That lodge right there was in the story that my father told, you know. It's living history. Yeah, Bright Angel Lodge is where my mom worked. The laundromat, you know, and they've made changes since that time. But when you think about the fact that my great-grandmother walked those lands, my grandmother walked those lands, my father and mother walked those lands, it's almost like, you know, it's, it, you're just surrounded with history and you don't even realize it. And so here I was growing up at Palaka, Arizona and my saya had a, a house that had, um, two rooms. The, the main room was the living room in the daytime. And at night it turned into our bedroom. And then off to the side was a little kitchen. Uh, it had a little table that had enough room for four Four chairs, but a lot of people always came to visit. So we always, you know, brought in chairs and just placed them around and a lot of laughter. Um, And then the outhouse, you know, I didn't really have, they didn't have running water. And she finally, they put in a a propane stove for her to cook on. And then eventually electricity came into her house. And then um, eventually water was brought into her house. Uh, So um, I so saw, She was drinking I,
0: well water at that time. Then.
1: Yes, yes. We wow. had. To, I remember when we were little. Uh, I probably we were still living in Winslow at the time that we were. My dad would take us there to visit because it was probably about a forty-five minute drive from Winslow to the Hopi lands where he lived. And I remembered going after um, buckets of water at the well with my saya, and she lived kind of up on top of a little hill. Well, the buckets that I would carry, I was sloshing so much out by the time I got to the top, you know, I didn't ha- hardly have any water. And, well, oh, you were
0: probably really small and they, it was probably one of those buckets, you know, metal buckets with that yes, thin wire handle, yes, right? Yes, Which cuts into your hand. So. Yes, yes. Yeah, of course you were and, slopping it all over the place. Yeah, Tell and I wanted,
1: has... I'm sure I wanted to help, you know, I wanted yeah, yeah, to yeah. help. So it's like, give her a bucket. And you know <laughs> they probably knew exactly what was gonna happen by the time I got to the top. But <clears throat> that was I could just see memory.
0: you with that bucket like right up against your chin trying to, trying well, to carry I, that thing.
1: I think they gave me two, so it would balance. Oh really? Two. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I would carry two. Of course, I'm sure they probably just filled it up halfway or something. But <laughs> I I still have I can still remember that though. I remember going That's down to the well. I I remembered where the well was. And everybody in that area would all come to the well. And we would be waiting uh, for the next person to get water and the next person. And so sometimes we would meet up with other people there and then other times it was just us going to get water. So, and then when the water started to come into the people's houses, then you didn't see anybody that much after that. Um but my Saya, you know, she continued oh, Is that is that
0: is that because the, the well was kind of like a social place where people would meet
1: or you know, it probably just became that. You know, it just became that. Um my Saya, I remembered her telling me that when they lived on top of the mesa um at the Tewa village, uh she that's kind of how she met her her husband, um, eventually became her husband she would go down to the spring to get water in pottery, in the pottery container. Wow. And so she would go down there. And she told me one time, cause I asked her, I said, how did you meet grandpa? And she was sat there and thought about it. And, um, she had been a widow for a while at that time. And she said, well, one day I went to go get some water at the spring and, when I was there, nobody else was there. There was just me. She says, sometimes you would go there and other women were already there coming or going or waiting for the getting to fill up their, their pottery. But this time I was by myself. And she said that I, I, I felt like somebody was following me. And when I was sitting there getting the water, I felt like you know, somebody was looking at me and she wasn't really sure. And she said, you know, in me, I didn't want to look around. I didn't want to look, but I finally did. And that was your grandpa. And I, <laughs> and she said, I scolded him. I said, what are you doing here? Because I, it sounded like the men were not supposed to be in that area. It was kind of like for the women. And so, you know, he had to- told her that he wanted to talk to her. And that was the only place that where he could get her to, you know, to talk to. And she was just so concerned at the fact that he was there and he was male, you know, I don't want to talk to you. I've got to get the water. Well, he stayed with her. And I don't know if he helped her carry the, the pottery water up or what, but anyway, um, in that time, um, she, uh, they carried on a conversation. And she said, she said to me, she said, and then he came right there next to me and I was telling him, don't, you know, go away. You, know, you shouldn't be here. And, he was talking. and, um, she said, I was getting my, my water and he said to me, he called her name and she turned to look at him when he called and he was right there and he gave her a kiss and she said and i i was just laughing as she's telling this story because it's almost like she's reliving this thing all over again and she said i screamed and i said you know and she said don't be doing that and she said i got the water and i was washing my mouth i was washing my lips and i said sayo why would you do that when he kissed you and she said oh she said no she said I don't know where his. I don't know what he's been putting in his mouth, and he put it on mine. And she said it's just nasty. And I started laughing, and I said, "Tela, I said, you mean, uh, did he not kiss you when you were his, when you became husband? No," she said. I don't. I told him I don't want you to be kissing me she said because i see what you are eating and i see what you're putting in your mouth i don't want that on my lips she would say
0: oh wow but anyway
1: yeah i started laughing at that and then um but it made sense to me i said this this is weird but it makes sense to me yeah right
0: right it does
1: wow he was he was bold
0: he was bold. i imagine i imagine that your your mom was a bit of a she, she was in control of, of of her life and she was well, like yeah this is, is my
1: this is my grandma my grandma. Mother, yeah my you're, my sorry. dad's yeah. mom yeah yeah but um but she was also a would consider be considered like a midwife and and she kind oh, of okay. um she kind of worked on people like if you know people were saying my arm has been hurting me um I thought I'd come to you to see if you can rub rub it you know and that was, those were the terms that they used a lot. So as a little girl, I, you know, I didn't see all the details of, of the things that my grandmother, um, how she put things together, how she made the poultice or the drinks that she had to drink. But I remember sitting there and she would rub certain places in their bodies. And, um, and sometimes she could tell where they might have, uh, dislocated a part of their shoulder or their elbow or something like that and she would talk to them and tell them that she's getting ready to put it back in place and so I remember just seeing those you know every now and then Hmm. and um, so as I was that was when I was in elementary age and then I went and my father told my brother I can't make that decision for your sister she's going to have to make that decision whether to go back with you or not which I thought was very smart. But it put me in a place where I had to make a choice. You know, I wanted to be with my brothers. I miss them so much. But at the same time, the life with my father and my grandmother, even though it might have not been uh, many years, just that short period of time impacted me so much that when I became a professional storyteller, that's where I went to go back. I went back into that world of living with my um, Saya and my dad, because that was my storytelling world. That was mm-hmm. where I remembered and I could visually see um, the things that they were telling me because it was a constant. We didn't have any distractions. We didn't have a TV. And um, I know we had a radio because when we would eat lunch, my dad and my Saya liked to listen to a radio station that came on at noontime. And, um, there was a, a Navajo, um, radio person and a Hopi radio person, and they would do back to back. And so, and they liked listening to both of them. And, uh, the, you know, they, they not only talked about, um, what was going on, um, in the homelands of the, of both of their people, but they also brought songs from the, from the Tene people and the songs of the Hopi. And so. And they were both humorous men, the ones that were the radio announcers and Uh stuff. They were humorous. And my grandmother and my father would just be sitting there and they would just laugh. And I would say, what is he saying? What is he saying? You know, oh, they're talking about this. I said, but what's so funny? And then they would tell me, (laughs) well, this is what he said. I said, oh, okay." And so I think a lot of me, um, I I I don't know if I was an observer at birth or if I learned to become an observer, but because a lot of languages were being spoken around me and I didn't know those languages, I kind of would watch the people and look at the expressions and watch their body language. And sometimes I could figure things out.
0: Um, yeah, I, to- I totally get that yeah. So um these these radio hosts they were talking their own language they were talking in, in Hopi and Navajo. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah um, and, and so what, they're very what, different for me. Right. So. Um
0: yeah and what what was your father and your your sire's language? What did they speak? Uh
1: the mother language was Tewa. Okay. And then and Hopi then, Hopi and then your mom- came next.
0: Okay. And then your mother, what language did she speak?
1: She was from the, she spoke the Goic language, the Laguna language.
0: Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so what did you speak naturally growing up? Other English. Than English?
1: English. Oh. But <laughs> but I was, but you know, when it was funny because English, but then when um, I would, we had our own house in Winslow, but we would go and visit my grandma at the Laguna colony in hmm. Winslow. Uh, so we lived on the the eastern side of winslow and the colony was on the western side of winslow so um either we would walk or my grandpa would come and pick us up in his truck and take us back over there or um when my dad and them had a car then you know we would drive over there but i spent a lot of time at the colony with everybody Um, so the laguna language was being spoken the songs were being sung the traditions of the people were carrying on. It was almost like they just picked up a, a little portion of Laguna and brought it to Winslow. And that's so, so neat. Nice. Yeah. So but the people you... that lived there continued on um, like they were back home.
0: Right. And did you did you pick up Laguna? I mean I'm um
1: you know Laguna is probably out of the three languages of the Laguna, the Tewa and the Hopi. The one that comes the easiest to me in listening and in, um, in, 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 just saying the word is Tewa, uh, Laguna is very hard for me, but now that I'm getting older, I'm starting to, um, be able to make the sounds better. Um, the, they have, I don't even know how to describe it. There is so much sound that takes place in uh, placement of the tongue and the teeth and everything uh, in your mouth that goes on. That if you make a slight mistake, you could be saying something, you know, not so nice. You know. <laughs> oh
0: wow! Yeah.
1: <laughs> or or something that doesn't make sense because it's like no, no, it, you say this, and it's it's kind yeah. of like I thought I said that. No, right. use I, yeah. This is what, I so.
0: I hear
1: yeah yeah and then so, Hopi Hopi I love I love listening to the Hopi people talk but it wasn't something um, that I was surrounded by growing up because both both Lagunas and um, the Tewa and Hopi are m- matrilineal people so we always refer to the mothers first before the father's side. So in my Saya's house because uh she was her mother was Tewa, so she's Tewa, and then Hopi comes next with her children. And um, you know, uh, uh my my Saya was Tewa and Hopi. So she spoke Tewa, but she knew Hopi fluently, and my dad did too. So when they had a Hopi visitor, they spoke Hopi. And then when the visitor left, they spoke Tewa. Hmm. so if a Tewa and a Hopi came in the door, at, you know, together, then they would speak Hopi.
0: Okay. Because that's the, the visitor's language.
1: hmm And so that's, Yeah,
0: that's yeah. so respectful. I love that. That is so yes. cool.
1: But it also goes back to a traditional story. And that is how... Do you want to,
0: you want to yeah. share that story?
1: Well this Can is Can you share that story? Uh yeah, I think so. Uh it's it's something that my saya had told me at first Mesa is where this story takes place. Okay. And um in Hopi there are other mesas. There there's second mesa, and then they have a, a village by Tuba City, uh Muntkopi. And I don't I don't know if they refer to that as third Mesa, but, um, so this story is only at first Mesa, it doesn't involve the other Hopis because, um, and it, and actually it just, it mainly talks about how the Tewas came to live among the Hopis. And so you're getting a Tewa point of view, the Tewa side of the story. The Hopis may have their story about how the Tewas came, but, but this was a story that, that, um, my saya had told me and, and, you know, I'm not going to go into detail uh, about it, but it was just basically, um, a little bit about why, uh, we were there because I just assumed as a little girl going to the day school that, that we always live there I mean, uh, you know, every time I came home, they were there. My, I, I learned about Nempeu being Tewa and, um, Hopi. And so she lived there. And so, um, I just, I just assumed that, you know, we had always been there. I never even thought about us being anywhere else. And then one day I remembered, um, the kids had, teased us uh here and there i never thought anything of it and one time i went down to the trading post um like a is like a our little grocery store back then my grandmother and my uh, dad whenever they finished their pottery and their kachinas they would take it to the uh, trading for, post and um they would get money for their their pots and their kachinas and mm. then they would either buy groceries or clothes or whatever was necessary. And if they, if they had any money left over, um, you know, they would just save it and maybe use it in Winslow or or Holbrook. And so anyway, one time I went down there and I remembered people used to post little signs here and there advertising stuff. Um, and so I went there one time and I remembered, um, I went to go visit a relative that lived in that area. We just walked all over. We just walked all over to visit everybody. <laughs> and I was one to do that. And I remember seeing a sign and all it said was Tewas go home. And I thought, hmm, I wonder why somebody would say Tewas go home. And it was there and I read it and I just carried on. I didn't think anything of it. And then it started to come up a little bit more. Uh, And then at school, one of the kids, some of the kids started to tease a group of us Tewas, which, you know, we're Tewa and Hopi, but more Tewa. And um, they said, you Tewas, um, you don't belong here. You should go home. And I thought, well, we can't go home. It's school. They'll get mad at us if we leave school. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so that's where I, I thought that's what they meant. We tell us need to go home. It's like, well, we're not going to go home at school time. They're going to get mad at us if we go home. I said, no, you need to, you need to get out of here. You, you don't live here. You're not from here. And I still didn't understand that thought. When I went home, I asked my grandmother about it. I said, Saya, I said, um, at school, some of the kids are talking like this. And I told her the situation and she just kind of sat there and she looked at my dad and my dad just sat there and kind of um, nodded his head too. And so, um, you know, we had dinner and when we got everything cleaned up, we always went into the living room, bedroom area and relaxed there. And my sayas said, Drina, she said, you know, when you were talking about um, what went on today at school, uh, I, I want to tell you a little bit about us Tewas. So I said, okay, now my saya, she had broken English. And so a lot, sometimes my dad would um, have to uh, tell her something in Tewa. So she could understand it a little bit better. Um, even though she was in the world, you know, cause she sold her pots at museums and all these places. So she was in communication with other English speaking people, but, um, but she was just more fluent in the languages that she spoke. So, um, she sat there and she just basically told me that we, we were not originally from that place in Arizona. She said, we came from where, where your mother's people in New Mexico. Um, in that area, we, we are Tewas from the northern part of where your mother and them live. And she told me the she told me the place and I don't remember it. But, you know, um, it, it historically, it's kind of talked about. And they said that um, we were we come from a people that are um, good fighters, and mm. we're warriors. And so Uh, We were some of the ones that went up against the the Spanish people that came to the land long time ago. And she said that, um, so we were known for our fighting abilities, even though we're peaceful people, we don't, we don't, um, we don't jump into a fight basically, but if fighting has to happen, then we were the ones that knew how to do it and we were good at it. So, she said, um, after everything had kind of calmed down, um, the Hopis were having struggles here at First Mesa. The only village that was here was Walpi. That was the only village on the southern end of the Mesa. And when you actually look at First Mesa, an aerial view, if you look down on it, it looks like a a long ship, a wide, long ship. Okay. So, the the Hopi village or the... Walpi village was on the southern end, and then nothing the rest of the way. So, when the Tewas came, they gave them the place on the northern end of that mesa. So, that's why it's called um, the Tewa village. And then, eventually, when the Hopis and the Tewas married together, they came and built houses in the middle. And basically, in Tewas or Hopi Tewas, it's, it's called Middle Village. And so there's a, a variety, but you have your Tewas on the North, your Hopis on the South of this Mesa and in the middle is intermarriage between the two. So, um, anyway, uh, she said that, uh, the Hopis had come to their place to ask if they would come to live with them at their, at their place, because they had been raided on uh, a lot of the more nomadic tribes that were coming through, they would attack them, and the Hopis are known for their their peacefulness. Um, they, they don't jump into fighting. They are more of a prayerful people. Um, they they seek peace before war, and so they're not a they. At that time, they were not aggressive, and so they started to um, think about themselves and. You know, if, if these people keep coming at us, um, eventually, we're not going to be here pretty much. So we need to get somebody to help us, to protect us. So they sought the Tewas. How they decided that they were the ones um, and where to go to get this particular group, I don't know. But Sayah said that, that they had come and they found them, they talked to their um, leader. Uh, he said, you know, I can't, I can't send my people to a place that we don't really know anything about and expect them to go. So, um, I'm going to have to say no about it. And uh, I think the, they say said that the Hopi men that came, that made that journey, they stayed a while, they tried to convince them, but, but no, no answer. So they went back. And um, now different stories say different things, but Saya didn't tell me how many times they went back. Um, She didn't go into those kind of details, but the details are there among Mm -hmm. the the Tewa. Um, She just said that eventually um, they made a decision, a group of them, not all of them, but a group from that people decided that we're gonna take our families and go help the Hopis. So before they took off though, Sayah said that they, the Hopi men that came, they promised their leaders that the Hopis would take care of this group of people. They would uh, give them a place to live, teach them how to live off their land, provide for them while they're establishing themselves because right. they're leaving their homeland, they have nothing. So that was the promise. And they said that that was what would happen. So the families took off and I don't know how many months, uh, how many years of a trek it was because that's coming from, um, even Northern part of Santa Fe, North of Santa Fe, going all the way across into what is now the Hopi land of first Mesa. That's a long ways. So they stopped along the way and, um, even to this day, um, I remembered my my relatives saying that sometimes the men would make the trek back in the places where they had been, um, just to just to retell and to teach the the young ones where they had come from and where they stopped along the way. And so, um, and and I didn't know that until I was. That's in the cool. Family. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It only happened with the men. It, it never really had anything to do with uh, the women. So the men were the ones that would do this. And um, so I had really no reason to to know that. But my say said that once they got there, they did handle the people that were attacking. They made sure that, that the nomadic tribes that were coming through and attacking, they made sure that from, from that point on, that they knew that the Tewas were there and that the Tewas are um, were good warriors. Uh, they allowed some to live and some and, and many to die. But the ones that they allowed to live, they allowed them to live so that they could go back to their people and tell them that, that they were there and that they were going to be there to protect the Hopis. So if right. they came, they would lose their life. So um, basically, just warning you, don't yeah. come. <laughs> and so... You know everything calmed down. everything became a little bit more peaceful. The Tewas were given that piece of part of the the mesa, mm-hmm. but they were not being taken care of the way it was promised. And uh-huh. so Mysayh said that they had the the Tewa people had come together because they thought, well, you know they're not gonna, they're not gonna take care of us, so maybe we need to just um, uh, get our things and move on. And uh, the Hopis somehow found out about it, their leadership. They came together and they were asking, you know, why, why are they leaving? They said, well, you promised our leader that this is what you were going to do if we did what we did and you're not doing it. So therefore we're going to leave because apparently we're not wanted. So we're going to move on. And that panicked um, the Hopis because it's like, well, if you leave, then they're going to come back again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, then that's your problem. <laughs> so <laughs> That's so, what happens when you renege. <laughs> yeah. And so it's kind of like, so they will apparently now, now, mind you, my Saya is telling me this in a whole different way. And I, I'm just telling you just very uh, kind of on the surface type of thing. Huh. But um, when the Hopis um, found out, their leadership found out about it, they they had discussions on what did they need to do in order for them to stay so my saya said um, they both sides prayed about it because you don't just jump into a decision without praying about it both groups were very prayerful people the Tewas are known for their power of prayer they many tribes along the way um And, and some, this was something that was told to me by someone that found out that I was a Tewa from Arizona. And one of the things that he said to me, he said, I remembered my grandfather telling me about your people. And he said, one of the things that my grandfather told me is those Tewas, their prayers are very powerful. And Hmm. I said, oh, and he goes, yes. And he says, so my grandfather told me some stories about your people. And he said, they have, they carry powerful prayers. And then I, I thought to myself, you know, um, I believe that I, 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 I feel like, you know, um, I I've sensed that many times, but anyway, um, so they, what, what they ended up coming down to was they, they told the, they met in the middle of the Mesa They met in the middle and there's a specific place that's up there and probably um, not very many. There's just a, probably a few people that know about it. Um, but there's a place up there that, um, they dug a hole and now mind you, this Mesa is like rock. It's like Mm -hmm. a a big rock up there. So, um, they must have really, you know, chiseled into that rock or found a Sandy spot or something. But anyway, um, they came together and, uh, did their ceremony and they told the Hopi leaders to, to spit in this hole. And I mean, they had to, um, that was part of it. So they did. And the Tay whoever was in that, um, leadership role. Um, they spit on on top of it, and then they covered it up. And so the Hopis, you know, asked, you know, why did this take place? And 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 basically the answer was, we will stay here among your people. We will do what we said we were going to do. We will live up to our part. But you, um, you did not do what you said you were going to do. And so because of this um, we have we have covered up our language from you. We will get to know and we will learn the language of the Hopi, but you won't learn the language of the Tewa. Wow, and so we have covered it up. And so my Saya said she told me where it was and um and it's been so long ago at when I was younger I knew exactly what she was talking about because um uh we i just knew and so <laughs> but now if i went back there i'm not sure if i could even i would even be able to point it out or know where it was
0: but oh i bet you would i bet you would get some spider sense going off on yeah. there and
1: you find it yeah you know i i i remembered that they used to visually have something but i don't think it's there anymore so um i have no idea anyway uh so my sayas said that is why whenever um whenever we raise up our families um we tewa women when if we were to marry a hopi man um our children are raised up tewa they will learn a little bit about their father's ways or their hopi mother's way um But if they, if our Tewa boys marry a Hopi woman, then their children are raised up Hopi. And so um, so whenever they had anything to do with the ceremonies, like the boys, if they, uh, if they went to help their father, that was Hopi in their, in their Hopi ceremonies, um, they knew to keep them separate. You know, they just knew to keep them separate. And so I, I, at first, when I heard that story and she said, and that's why they're saying Taylor's go home, because this place was not originally our place. We come from the east. We come from what they now know as New Mexico. And um, so I said, oh, and then but after she told me the story, you know, I, I walked a little bit different. I stood a little bit different.
0: did you stand yeah. taller? huh? Did you stand taller? Yeah because you knew that your people yeah helps the hopi people
1: yeah and and not only that, but we were there to and we kept our side of our word yeah you know? and and that um that we were still there and and even though, and I was brought up um like my saya would say even though we may be treated in not a nice way that is that is something that they have to deal with yeah we have to keep our promise and we have to we have to be the people that we are and and we and so you know it was just it was almost like keeping your word
0: yeah that's, we, that's awesome.
1: that's so cool. And, and thank you for
0: sharing our,
1: that. yeah yeah, we kept our word all this time and we're still here, even though they're still trying to push us out, even though they're still trying to tell us to go um we we have been there and we and and so and I said, well, saya, I said, if somebody comes to attack again, will the Tewas rise up and they she said yes. She said, we are the warriors. We are the, we are the protectors of this place. And so I thought to myself, because there is a story about a, uh, a Tewa warrior girl. And so anyway, um, really? yeah, a little yes. bit different. And so when they said, you know, Tewas go home, I think in the back of my head, I'm thinking, no, you really don't want us to go home.
0: <laughs> you need us.
1: Yeah, you know you don't know this, but yeah, we're here for a reason. And so, anyway, I at, when I was younger, though, I thought to myself, "Well, that's just a story." It kind of it <sighs> might make sense, but today, today that doesn't make sense because how could one group not know anything about the other group? You know, how could, how could the, the Hopis that live here not learn the, the language of the Tewa because they're right here, you know, they're living together. They're intermarrying. How does that not happen? And so, because I've always been a curious little girl, I, I said to my, went to my visit, my aunt and my uncle, my aunt of course is Tewa Hopi and my uncle was Hopi. So I went to my uncle and I asked him, I said, uncle, tell me this story, but it doesn't make sense to me because you and uncle live together. Surely you know how to speak Tewa. And he said, no, because he was an older man. And I said, uncle, how could you not know how to speak Tewa? And he said, well, let me tell you. Whenever you people are here, you Tewa people are, are at our house. Um, when I'm not here, what language do you speak when you're at my house? And I said, Tewa, and he said, have you noticed that when I come home and I step into the house, what language is spoken? Hopi, he says, yes. When I'm here, Hopi is spoken. When I'm not here or any other Hopi is here, you people speak Tewa. Um, (laughs) I said, yeah, but you have beauty and you do things in the kivas and stuff. How is it that, um, you know, and he said, no, he said, your, your, um, your cousins, um, they're, if they take part in Tewa, that is not for me to know. And he said, it only makes sense. I am not Tewa. Why would I have to know something that I am not a part of? And he said, so it only makes sense for me to know Hopi because that's who I am. I am not Tewa. I don't need to know what the Tewas do because that is not who I am. Wow. At that moment in time, it made sense. And so that's, that also, that also speaks to the stories. That, you know, many right. times when I go to festivals or in the past, they have panels and people ask the, the native pe- the native speakers, um, you know, about, is it okay for us to tell Native American stories? You know, we think it is because we can tell everybody else's stories in the world. You know, why can't we tell their stories? <laughs> and so it, it kind of goes back to that. Yeah. You know, it, now you know, Now that I'm thinking about it, it kind of goes back to what my uncle was saying. I am not Tewa, Yeah. I'm Hopi. Why would I want to know that? Because that's not the world that I live in. And so, even though it it he lives with them, everything that he did and everything that he addressed was Hopi. Right. You know. Uh. So he wasn't. That's, yeah. In
0: the- that's really in- Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I can. So you know, on an intellectual level here. Um. Yeah. I I, I totally get that. Uh, but I also think that nowadays you know I look, so the only comparison that I have as as somebody that was raised in the u k is um, I, I can closely identify with Wales because when my mother and father divorced, my father moved to South Wales, so I have a half brother and a half sister who live in south or lived in south Wales uh, my half brother still does um, so I spent a lot of time um, over the border and you you could walk into a shop. And you could you would hear the women talking in the shop or the guys talking in the shop. they'd be talking in English, but as soon as you walked in, if they didn't recognize you, they'd suddenly switch into Welsh right because they didn't want me to hear their stories. they didn't want me to understand right They just assumed that I was English right which which to me was like when i when I first experienced that, I think I was like thirteen, and I was just like, "What just happened?" And then I just like burst out laughing and they kind of looked at me funny because I, you know, I figured out what, what was going on and why they were doing it. But it, it's, you know, again, taking my own, um, my own experience between the English and the Welsh, the Welsh language is trying to be, you know, they were trying to get rid of it very, very hard. And then the Welsh came back in the, in the seventies and said, no, you know, we need to retain our culture. We need to retain our language. We, we need to retain our traditions, right. You know, even the women with the big pointy black hats and, uh, and you know there's there's been a great deal of work to try and revitalize the language sh- uh save the culture save the the traditional welsh stories um and and now i think back then you know, i totally you know, on an intellectual level i understand what you're saying but now it, it's it, it's like do, do we do we need to preserve these stories still within our own communities or do you think we should share those stories because of the knowledge that these, these stories um, have and, and pertain, even though, you know, Wales and England are completely different to New Mexico and Arizona, right? I mean, there's, you know, <laughs> I don't think there could be much dispa- much more disparity between the two. But it's, it, the, the lessons that you have in uh, a lot of these folk tales and stories and, and myths, they carry these truisms, um and i think that with so many people in the world now with our with our cultures so mixed and matched and and you know certainly f- for for uh western european you know it's it's become a very homogenized culture in some ways um and i think the american culture is is very similar it's become homogenized because you know, like England back in the you know early early history, we were invaded by the Germans, by the Scandinavians, by the French, um, and all of those different cultures merged into one to make Britain what it is. Right? Mm-hmm. The ori- they say that the, ori- the original English don't exist anymore that the original English are in fact the Welsh and the Welsh moved over to Ireland and Ireland is filled up with Irish, Welsh and Scots people, right? Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't, know, I don't know how much is yeah. true of that, but. yeah. Well, you know, it it's interesting because coming from the place that I'm coming from, uh-huh. I'm, I'm very interested in other people's stories, you know, and, and I'm interested in basically what you were just talking about. So if I'm interested in, your story why wouldn't somebody be interested in my story? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the the difference is um, that I noticed and that I um, I honor is that uh, like for instance when you said you walked in and they changed because mm-hmm. they didn't recognize you you looked different you didn't you know so they changed it, it, it's a it was their natural way of protection of who Mike. they are. And among the, you know, whether it's Canada all the way down into um, Mexico and Central America and all of them, you know, so much of who they were.
0: This ends part one of the incredible conversation that Aldrina and I had. Be sure to come back soon for part two. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, and on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com. And on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree. Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout-out to Chris Jett for creating and recording and letting me use this wonderful piece of music he created, especially for my podcast. Thanks, Chris. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out and they have a new album coming out very soon. You can keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my Patreons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content on my work. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. If you can't join my wonderful tribe of patrons, then please help me out by doing something you can do. I'll be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find this episode. It doesn't take long, and it helps not just me, but others find and enjoy this podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are a lot of other places you could be, and I appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. It's just a story. Just a story.